0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Brutal Planet, right here on Yeshiva Radio, as well as your local radio affiliate. My name is Christopher Fredrickson. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with each and every single one of you here today as we go through the New Testament readings for that of the Torah portion, Vayera. Now, if you have your Bible with you, make sure to go and open your Bible to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be going through verses 14 through 22. Now, we're going to be hitting upon several different premises that are found within this week's Torah portion. I'm going to be reading this from the uh, Dalage Hebrew Gospels, as a matter of fact, uh, which is Franz Dalage's translation from uh, Greek to that of Hebrew, and then First Fruits of Zion took that Hebrew, and they did a translation into English. So we're going to be looking at that. Uh, We're not going to be going through too much Semitic language here today. We're going to be going through a little bit, but not a lot. Um, So, you know, so don't get too wigged out if it is that you don't know Hebrew, all right? Now, however, if you do want to learn Hebrew, make sure to go and check out the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute. I'm one of the three instructors over there, and I teach, um, I'm one of the Hebrew instructors over there. We also have another amazing Hebrew instructor and another amazing Aramaic instructor. And at some point, I may get my Moray certification in that of Aramaic to also teach Aramaic. Who knows? It might happen. We'll see. But uh, I'm still working on that. But, you know, we're going to be going through uh, this here today. Oh, and by the way, Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute is Hebrewandaramaic.com. Make sure to go and check that out. But uh, what I'm going to do first is I'm going to go and read through the verses that it is that we have here so we have proper context, first of all. And then I'm going to be highlighting several different things within this, many things that are not necessarily even connected, in all honesty. So uh, just hang with us here. Now, starting out at verse 14, it says, One day he was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the mute person spoke, and the people were amazed. There there were some of them who said, By Baal-Zevul, the prince of demons, he drives out the demons. There were some who tested him and asked him for a sign from heaven. He knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be destroyed, and house will fall against house, even the satan. If he is divided against himself, how then will his kingdom remain firm? For you said that by Baal Zevul I drive out demons, but if I drive out demons by Baal Zevul, who um, by who do your sons drive them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. By it, but if by by that finger of God, I drive out the demons. Then the kingdom of God has arrived to you. When the mighty man, uh, when the mighty man guards his court and his weapon is upon him, his possessions will have shalom. But if someone stronger than him comes against him and overpowers him, he will take the weapon that he trusted and from him and divide his spoils. Okay. Now the first thing I'm going to mention is that one of the things you guys know is that whenever it is that we do these teachings, whenever it is that we put these out, I always end up having book upon book spread out all over my desk or all over my bed or wherever it is I'm studying at that time. I have books spread out everywhere. And I'm trying to go and get you guys the best uh, commentary that I can by going through many different books. And the thing that was interesting is, I said to myself, "Okay, let's see if we can figure out who this um, who this Baal Zavul cat is." You know, let's see if this is mentioned anywhere within that of Talmud. Let's see if it's found in anywhere of such as Midrashim. Let's see if it's found within that of the Zohar. Let's see if we can find this name anywhere. And then I was also looking at other commentaries that I have attached to certain Bibles, and I'm going to be bringing out one of those here today that was not necessarily so good. <laughs> but, however, the thing that was striking to me, especially when it is that I looked within the Zohar, is that we cannot find this uh, uh, this person, this, this Baal Zavul, this particular name for that of the Satan, found anywhere. And so, you know, we have a little bit of an issue here. But then, when we look at it in terms of Semitic language, Baal, first of all, can mean many different things. Baal is not just a deity. Many people in the Sacred Name movement try and, you know, whenever, say, you know, you can't say Lord because that is Baal, you know, because it's, it's that deity that was worshipped in in in, uh, in in Kings that Elijah had to go up against. But the thing about it though is is such individuals don't know Semitic language. Learning Semitic language is very important. Because we find the word Baal all throughout that of the Tanakh, okay? We find it uh, being translated as husband. We find it as being translated as business owner, land owner. We find it being translated as as master or boss or many of those things. We also find a uh, the Aramaic equivalent within that all throughout the Kebraos Codex of the New Testament, which is the earliest form of the New Testament in Aramaic. And it says within there, it refers to God as Maryeh uh, Alachah, the Master God. You know, that's, you know, basically uh, which would be the equivalent of Hashem Elohim that is found throughout that of the Tanakh. It's the direct equivalent of that, you know, but however, as opposed to the singular plural of Elohim, it would be the, the, uh, the absolute sing- singular which is the difference between echad and yachid, and it's kind of trying to separate uh, Yeshua and and, and Hashem by showing the different attributes of the sefirot in that way, by going and saying alachah as opposed to the singular plural form, which would be the equivalent of Elohim. Okay, and so the thing about it though is that this word baal is not necessarily a, always a negative thing in this context. It is okay, and so in this context we can actually go and say that it is in a negative context, especially given the context of what is happening here. Now the word zavul, or, or I'm sorry, zavul, actually also can mean flies or dung. Okay, so, you know, this is kind of like, you know, uh the name of that book, Lord of the Flies, and it was also made into a movie. So sad that they had to kill Piggy, you know. I kind of liked Piggy, and, you know, they ended up killing Piggy. But <laughs> but also, you know, uh, it's also a derogatory term, term that is used against that of the Satan as well, because— uh, Zivul also means dung as well, is also what it means. So, so there's a huge derogatory term towards the say, during, during the Satan that is being used here, and people trying to push that upon that of Yeshua. Now the question is, where does this parallel with that of the Torah portion Vayera? Within the Torah portion Vayera, what we end up seeing is that we have Moshe Rabbeinu going up against the sorcerers and necromancers and the magicians and so on and so forth that were employed by that of Paro. And so with that, we see that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu were going to do something through that the power of Hashem, and then the sorcerers and so on and so forth would end up doing the same thing, you know, through the, you know, deities that it is that they worshipped or through, you know, uh, the the not-so-kosher things that it was that they were doing, okay? And so the thing is that, you know, so this is where the question then comes and pops up here, is, you know, was this being done by that of Hashem, or was this being done by that of the Satan? Now, the thing that I want to make note of is I said that I uh, had looked at several different commentaries. I had books upon books spread out all over the place. I still haven't gotten a chance to go and clean them all up because I was walking around the entire apartment that day going and you know, saying, well, let me go check this, this one, you know, and going through all those. And then I was like, oh, let me go and check this one. You know, there has to be something in here, you know, but it seems that not many people want to go and touch this very thing. But then there's one commentary that i look at rather often because of the fact that this commentary is put into and i'm not going to mention what it is because i don't want to disparage the text in any way because good 70 or 80 percent of the time it has good stuff within it okay and so i'm not going to name it by name but it basically what it is is a jewish um it's a Jewish commentary that is within that of a translation of the RSV of the New Testament and is actually put out by Oxford, you know, I mean, great scholars in Oxford and other great scholars that I really, you know, um, uh, rely on a lot had contributed things to, um, to this commentary as well, such as Amy Levine, such as um, Dr. Mark Nanos, N.T. Wright, and several others. And so I was like, okay, there might be something in there. Every now and then, you know, there might be something. And then sometimes it's kind of hit or miss. And this was one of the times where it was a huge miss. (laughs) And it's something that I've seen pop up so often. I thought it was very important to go and make note of this. And so this is what the commentary says, okay? Um, Now, it gives a full commentary here in terms of 14 through 23 and it mentions the uh the uh Beelzebul, uh, co- uh controversy Beelzebul Satan Beelzebul exalted Baal originally the title of a, of a Canaanite Baal um as we see in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 2 Baal-zebub is a parody of the name meaning the lord of the flies okay now so so therefore you're getting into this whole thing that that's the only thing that this Baal actually means, which we've made note of, doesn't. I actually have a whole episode um, that you can go and download absolutely free. It's an audio episode where I go through all the various times that the word Baal is found within that of the Tanakh, and it doesn't mean something relating to a Canaanite god and all these other things. And if you have an interlinear, I I would tell you to go and While you're listening to that episode, go and have your interlinear out and check to make sure that I am correct in this, and I guarantee you'll find out that I I am. So, that was one huge issue with this footnote, but the footnote goes on. It says, Babylonian Tractate Sanhedrin 43a attributes Jesus' wonder-making to demonic powers. And so... This is something that I have seen people go and talk about rather often, especially, you know, um, what I like to call YouTube theologians. <laughs> There's a uh, there, there was a huge push probably about a good 15 years ago when I first started out that was to try and, and bring the Kairite movement into that of the Hebrew roots, the Messianic Judaism, and several other… Um, face that are attached to, to those and so the thing about it though is that you know this it sounded so good you know sola scriptor. you know i mean I, I, for, for for a beginner for a newbie that sounds great because basically that gives you a license to basically you know make up whatever it is that you, that you want to and so what happens is there was a book that was put out called um jesus in the talmud Okay, And this guy was very much anti-Talmud, all over the place. And I've done a couple of videos, of a couple of video teachings and audio teachings, where it is that I have taken some of the things that are said within that book, and then I've gone and taken scans of those pages of Talmud, and say, this really doesn't say what it is that the author of this book says that it says. One of the big ones is Gatine 57b, you know, uh, people quote quote that one who have never picked up a tractate of Talmud before in their life and say, the Talmud says in Gatine 57b that Yeshua is burning in excrement. It actually doesn't say that. It says Balaam is burning in excrement. You find that in both the Hebrew of the Talmud and you find it in the English that it doesn't mention Yeshua or Yeshu, which is the, um, the form of, uh, it's, a, it's an anagram for that of Yemak meaning may his name be obliterated or blotted out. That's what uh, uh, Yemak means. Now, the thing that is interesting about this term Yemak is Yemak or Yeshu is, doesn't necessarily have to attach itself to somebody named Yeshua or Yehoshua, it doesn't have to attach itself to that at all. It is a term that is used for an individual who, basically, you know, was uh, that was under the jurisdiction of a particular rabbi or any rabbi for that matter. And basically, they ended up becoming apostate, and their name was obliterated from the record. That's what you know, Yamakshimo um, or Yeshu uh, uh, um, means. Okay. And so the thing is that we are going to look at this citation within that of the Talmud um, that, you know, uh, for this particular commentary, they tried to, you know, say, well, well, this is a part of these these verses. This is the rabbinic commentary for those verses. And we'll see that it's definitely not the case. Um, And so the citation was that of Sanhedrin 43a within that of the Thomas? So we're going to go there. It says in Sanhedrin, 40, uh, uh, Sanhedrin 43a, it says, It was taught, On the eve of Passover, they hung Yeshu, and the crier went forth for 40 days beforehand, declaring Yeshu is going to be stoned for practicing witchcraft. For enticing and leading Israel astray. Anyone who knows something to clear him should come forth and exonerate him. But no one had anything exonerating for him, and they hung him on the eve of Passover. Ullah said, Would one, uh, would one think that he should, uh, should look for exonerating evidence for him? He was an enticer, and God said, Show him no pity or compassion, and do not shield him, as we see in Deuteronomy 13.9. Yeshu was different because he, he was um, close to the government. Now, the thing that is interesting about this is that as we read, read further into this passage, it mentions that this Yeshu is gone and hanged with five of his disciples. Five of his disciples who are named Matai, Nakai, Nazar, Buni, and Todah. Okay? And so, first of all, we're going to get to the first issue within this, when people try and say that this is talking about Yeshua or Jesus. First of all, it says that Yeshua was hung on the eve of Passover. Well, we have a huge chronology issue here because, first of all, we see Yeshua went and practiced and did the uh, Passover Seder in Luke chapter 22, okay? Now, you go and you set up for the Seder on the eve of Passover. You eat the Seder the time of sundown. And then, at the time of sundown, what happens? At the time of sundown, the next day happens, and it is then, um, it is it it is the de- then the day after Pesach, okay? And so, therefore, one of the things that we end up seeing is that Yeshua ate the Pesach, did the Pesach on Passover, as is mentioned when he goes and tells Kefa, "Go and prepare the Pesach." And they go and they have the Seder. And so, therefore, we have that issue there. Because within Sanhedrin, this Yeshu individual was uh, um, killed on the eve of Passover. So, this is a huge issue here. Another huge issue that we have here is that, first of all, this Yeshu was condemned by that of the Sanhedrin. Within the gospel accounts, the Sanhedrin did indeed meet, but they met at a time to where it is that nothing was official. It was during a time that was at, at, at sundown. We see that after the Seder, Yeshua goes into that of, um, um, into the garden. He goes and he prays. He is then gone and arrested by that of the Romans. And the Romans then go and put him to death. But in this passage in Sanhedrin, it says uh, that the Sanhedrin themselves went and put this Yeshu to death. So that's another issue. Second of all, considering that when we look at the Gospel chronology... And all and all of these things. And now, now, first of all, when it says on the eve of Passover, there's another huge issue here, as well, because first of all, not only was Yeshua gone and killed the day after Passover, but the day of Passover as well, the Sanhedrin couldn't do anything. They 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 couldn't put anybody to death, because it is against Jewish law to go and put somebody to death on Passover. Okay, so when people get into the chronology issues here, you know, and all, all of that stuff, you know, they have another issue if they believe that Yeshua was killed on Passover, if they don't understand, you know, the chronology from Luke chapter 22, which is very basic, you know. Uh, but let's just say that, you know, people go in and misread John and then say, you know, well, that, you know, he was killed on Passover. Well, still, at the same time, the Sanhedrin couldn't kill anybody on Passover. Another thing that we have to realize as well is that during the time of the first century, the Sanhedrin that was in place was considered to be a, uh, a uh, not a real Sanhedrin because of the fact that the positions were sold um, to individuals such as Caiaphas. You know they were They were sold to him from that of the Roman government. And so there is a lot of talk from, you know, uh, from Maimonides, from that of Rashi, and also within that of the Talmud that in terms of that halakha, it doesn't stand because it was an illegitimate Sanhedrin at that time. And we see that as well, considering that, you know, that they met at night as well. And this is why it is that you have um, certain individuals trying to put Yeshua back on trial, saying, hey, he didn't get a fair shake, you know, so therefore, you know, you know he needs to be retried. You know, um, and so you know the thing about it, though is that again, but, but you know, still at the same time, he wasn't ex- wasn't executed by the Sanhedrin. That's a huge problem. Thirdly, we have another issue here. We it says in here that Yeshua that they the Yeshua was close to the government, that that was one of one of his issues that he was close to the government. We don't see that in the gospel, in the gospels at all. We don't have any evidence. In fact, he was kind of against Roman occupation, so you know that that's kind of a huge issue there as well. Finally, it says that he was killed with um, five of his of his uh, disciples of his Talmudim. Now the thing about it, though is that Mattai, which is Matthew, yes, Yeshua did have a disciple named Matthew. It's a very popular name in the first century of Israel. Mattai or Matisyahu or Matthew. Very popular name. Chances are everybody had a disciple named Mattai or Mattisyahu Yahu or Matthew. What about Nakai? Did Yeshua have a disciple named Nakai? No. Did Yeshua have a disciple named Nezer? No. Did Yeshua have a disciple named Buni? No. Did Yeshua have a disciple named Todah? No. (laughs) So this is another huge issue here trying to say that this is talking about Yeshua HaNotsri. And third and finally, in terms of that very same thing here, another issue arises as well. It shows that Yeshua, within the gospel accounts, that Yeshua was hung by that, uh, uh, or in between that, of two thieves, two criminals. doesn't make any note of any of his disciples. As a matter of fact, it says that his disciples met with him after his resurrection. So, obviously, it's not talking about the same Yeshu, or Yeshua, or Yamakshamo here. It's not talking about the same guy. But, however, we have a, another piece of Talmud here that goes and tells us who is this particular Yeshu, this Yamakshamo, okay? Because there were many people who were given the title of Yamakshamo all throughout that of Talmudic literature, and we find this in Sotah 47a within that of the Talmud. Now, in sotah 47a, it says, Rabbi Yehoshua uh, ben uh, uh, Parachia came to a certain inn. His host stood up for him in display of great honor, and he continued to accord him, uh, and they continued to accord him much honor. He sat and was uh, praising his hostess. How nice is this hostess, meaning how pleasing are her deeds. Mistakenly, the teacher's intention, one of his students, Yeshu, said to him, Rabbi, she is not beautiful for her eyes are round. Rabbi Yehoshua ben uh, Parachah said to his student, Wicked one, in matters such as this, you occupy yourself. He took out 400 horns, And exonerated the student. Every day, the student would come before Rabbi Yehoshua ben uh, Perachiah to beg forgiveness. And Rabbi Yehoshua ben uh, Perachiah would not receive him, i.e., he refused to forgive him. One day, when Rabbi uh, Yehoshua ben Perachiah was reciting Kiriyash Shema, the prayer declaring the unity of God during which is talking uh, which talking is forbidden, the student came to him yet again. This time, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Parachiah had intended to accept him and to pardon him. Being unable to talk at that moment, he motioned to the student with his hand that he would receive him as soon as he finished reciting the Kiryas Shema. But the student thought that he was pushing him away yet again and despaired for ever attending his teacher, attaining his teacher's forgiveness. So he went and stood a brick on the end and worshipped it as an idol. Subsequently, Rabbi Yehoshua ben parakiah said to him, Repent! But this student replied to him, Thus I have received a tradition from you. Whoever sins and causes others to sin is not given the opportunity to repent. And the master said, This student practiced sorcery, incited others, and led them astray, and caused Israel to sin. As we see here, that is not uh, Yeshua Notzri the issue that is talked about within that of Tractate Sanhedrin, if we know Tarashe B'alpeh, and if we are good students of Tarashe B'alpeh as well as Tarashe B'khtav, then the thing is that we would see that these were two totally different individuals. And so therefore, many of the commentaries that you see from individuals who are novices within that of the Torah you can see that it is absolutely incorrect when they say that it, that uh, the Talmud says horrible things about Yeshua. Many of the things are either grossly misstated, taken completely out of context, or totally out of context altogether. In fact, there is only one point where it is where Yeshua HaNatsari, Yeshua of Nazareth, is mentioned within that of the Talmud. And he was actually talked about in a good light and he was not referred to as yeshu but as yeshua and it was um where it is that yochov ended up going to one of the rabbis of the talmud and said that the um that the uh that the temple was filled with um with harlots and all and all and all of these things and i think it was rabbi eliezer said and i liked what it is that what it is that he said and he refers to him as a Talmud of, of Yeshua Hanotzri. So, you know, the thing about that is that's the only time that that the actual Yeshua of the Gospels is mentioned within that of the Talmud. Okay? And so when you hear people say, you know, Oh, you know, that uh, the Talmud was a response to Christianity and all of this stuff. And that, you know, it says all of these horrible things about uh, Yeshua. These are individuals who have never read the talmud they have never looked at it they've never studied it they don't know any of these things and so you know and the thing about it though is that that was once a very huge um part of you know the uh movement of individuals who are you know doing their best to keep uh, uh the torah shebechtav and as well as retaining belief in 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 yeshua and the thing about it though is that you know when you have babies and you're trying to you know, the a lot of them will just grasp a hold of anything. But also, let's go and look at um, another factor within this. Another factor that is um, within this uh, New Testament reading here today. Now, the thing about it though is that the the this idea of demonology and um, and. Uh, going in exercising demons and all this stuff. is not really talked about all that much within that of Judaism, though it does take place, you know, but it's not as often as you end up seeing, you know, um, in Catholicism and um, Protestant Christianity because there are certain criteria that are involved that are much more stringent that uh, basically deals with making sure that a person is not just going through psychosis, you know. Many of the things that, you know, videos online and all that stuff, you can obviously see that a person is maybe not possessed, but they are suffering from psychosis. But then again, we have to ask ourselves, you know, is, is one thing a part of, the, part of another, and maybe the dimension is just different. And that's very possible in some ways, shapes, and forms. The things that we have to realize is that, first of all, when we have this term that is used within that of the Hebrew of this Lord of the Flies, one of the things that you end up seeing is that, considering that it also has the synonymous definition with the Lord of Dung, you know the thing that you can uh, on you know think about is I remember um, you know every winter, you know through downtown I live in downtown Morganton all throughout the winter we have uh, carriage rides out there. And, you know, of course, those horses have to go and, you know, do their business in the middle of the road. And so there's times where you go through the middle of the road and you see a big pile right there, you know. And what ends up happening, you see all these flies coming. Now, when there's one fly, the chances are there's like 12, 14, 15, you know, maybe even 100 flies, you know, in the same place, you know, all just, you know, it's almost like one of them goes and rings a shofar and tells all the rest of them, just come on. And so the thing about it, though, is that, you know, that this term being, being used there can also signify something else as well. That we have to realize that there is both an external and an internal satan. Now, the internal satan can be seen in many ways as... um as you know being possessed by demons but not necessarily in the same way you know and many of the things that it is that we happen have happened to our to ourselves is for a reason of correction when you go and you look at what the role is of the yetzahara is the yetzahara's ultimate job is to kill you to kill you spiritually then to go and kill you emotionally physically and then, you know, hopefully to just end your, end your life. You could think about this in terms of a drug addict. A drug addict, you know, they um, do what it is that they do because of something that has to do with them spiritually or emotionally. They get beaten down emotionally and spiritually, so they try and block it out by taking, you know, a narcotic or something of the sort. And so what happens is that ends up happening, then their teeth start falling out, they look horrible, they decide not to shower, you know, and all these things. then they have all of these health problems because of their reliance upon their narcotic. And so you see how it is that these things compound upon one another. Well, sin works in the same way. If a person, first of all, say for instance that a person is, you know, claiming, you know, I try and observe the Torah of Hashem as best I I can, but then they have this one part of their walk to where it is that they struggle with, but they decide, you know what, I'm just going to keep that from everybody, I'm going to keep that from God, I'm not going to, you know, deal with that because, you know, this is my one vice that it is that I still get to keep for myself. The thing that ultimately ends up happening is they see how that one vice then goes and causes it to become two vices, three, four, five, and to where, to where it is that they are living a seemingly totally different life than what it is that they present. And what happens is that in terms of their nefesh and their neshama, it is corroded with flies, essentially. So the question then becomes, is it possible that this individual, this mute person, that uh, that had demons within him that Yeshua cast out, was this in cause of sin? And was it not necessarily like spiritual entities coming into him and all of these things, but rather something that he manifested within himself that came out? That is definitely a possibility. I'm not saying that that's absolutely correct, but... It's another avenue in which to see this because one of the things that we ultimately end up seeing is that when Yeshua goes and heals somebody, nine times out of ten he goes and says your sins are forgiven. So we see that a lot of the times we bring things upon ourselves and our sin causes us to have an ailment within us because God wants us to look within ourselves. He wants us to look within ourselves and say, Yeah, you know, this thing over here that you're doing, not necessarily so hot, not necessarily so kosher here. You need to be working on this, and it's going to strengthen you in the long run. And so what we ultimately end up seeing is that when Yeshua goes and heals somebody, that the affliction that is actually taken from them is their desire for sin in that particular area. And so, therefore, this could be another vantage point of how this can be seen. And it could be seen both in the traditional sense and in the way that I just describe it simultaneously. It doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. It could be a simultaneous thing. And that's one of the things in terms of reading the scripture and seeing things from a three-dimensional way in how it is that we ultimately end up going and properly analyzing the scripture is in these ways. Okay? Now, ladies and gentlemen, I hope and I pray that this teaching has been helpful to each, each of you. And uh, make sure to join us on Friday night as we have our uh, our Torah study. Also, if this teaching has been a blessing to you, one of the things that I want you guys to know is that on January 10th, all of our ministry bills are due for the next six months. And the thing that I, that I, I, I can tell you is that You know, we're not like most of those ministries that, you know, go and say that, you know, our costs are thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of dollars. We actually go and do all that it is that we do every six months for less than $300, okay? And we need to raise the funds to be able to continue, keep on doing what it is that we're doing with, you know, first of all, giving you these free videos, the MP3s, the... um the podcast server, making sure you get the things on iTunes, um, making sure that it is that you have the radio station in which we go and uh, um, uh, have running uh, 365 days a year, 24-7, you know, that's always playing with uh, amazing teachings from a variety of different teachers. Um, And as well, you know, making sure that we have our server up and our URLs and all that stuff, you know, we do all of that for less than $300 every 6 months <laughs> you know which you know again we're not going to lie to you about our about our costs but we also realize that you know we reach many of you guys each and every single weekend we need you guys as help to be be able to keep on doing what it is that we're doing in terms of our ministry costs So, if you want to help us out make sure to go to lapidjudaism.com. Go and click on our PayPal button, and one of the things that I will personally do for you guys is that anybody who donates fifty dollars or more um, to uh, helping us out to get through the next six six months of this ministry is that if you go and you do that, I'm going to give you a year free of the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute. Okay, you'd be able to access. All 200 of the teachings that are on there, helping you go step by step through the Hebrew and Aramaic languages, as well as access to the over 100 PDF files that accompany each and every single lesson to help you through the process as well. Okay, so, you know, that's one of the things that I will personally do for for you. and that's only a quarter of the cost of what it usually costs for a full year of the Hebrew and Aramaic Learning Institute. So, you know, you can get something really cool in a, in turn and you get to mark it off on your taxes, which is always nice. All right, so thank you again. Make sure to go and subscribe to us on iTunes. Make sure to check us out on Friday as well. All right, shalom bocha, peace and a blessing, shalom. So you want to learn Hebrew, or Aramaic, or maybe both? Make sure to check out Hebrewandaramaic.com All three of the instructors on the website have accredited Moray licenses to teach the languages that they teach on the website. You can take the lessons on your very own time and they even have a Roku channel so you can learn from the comfort of your very own couch. With over 200 videos going step-by-step step through the languages and all the various scripts and over 100 PDFs of exercises and quizzes, this is the most thorough set of lessons that you'll find anywhere on the languages of the Tanakh and the Brit Tadashah. So visit Hebrewandaramaic.com today and sign up for only $15 a month.